it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate for two treat. pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy what is exciting about the Green New Deal, it's also coming at a time when we can talk about how we not just envision how we change our energy system, but how we change our economy. To me, it's an opportunity to say, we are not only going to judge our economy by how well big corporations are doing, we are going to judge our economy by how well ordinary people are doing. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. Produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. This season, we're focusing on all things Green New Deal. We won't tell you who to vote for, but we will tell you why your vote is important. I'm Miles Bloxon, assistant producer for The Secret Ingredient, hosted by Tom Philpott, food and agriculture reporter for Mother Jones Magazine, Rebecca McEnroy of KUT Radio, and Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. secret ingredient. We're carrying on our theme of the Green New Deal. And so, although normally we have a theme, the Green New Deal is a big theme, and the sub-theme, because uh, that's how we roll, because we're that nerdy, is Texas. And no one is better qualified to talk to us about it than Christina Tintun Ramirez, the co-founder of the Workers' Defense Project, founder of JOLT, and current Democratic senatorial candidate here in the great state of Texas. Uh, Christina, welcome to The Secret Ingredient. Thanks for having me. Thank you for matching my energy and not letting me uh, get a word in edgewise there. Um, but um, <laughs> that's the, we're starting as we mean to carry on. By beginning with the question, look, when you first heard about the Green New Deal and you first read it, what did you think? I was incredibly excited that we were actually talking about how to tackle climate change that wasn't a piecemeal proposal, especially here in Texas, because we have the second largest economy in the country. We are the largest carbon emitter in the United States. And so for me, I saw it as an opportunity for us actually to talk about how we were going to tackle climate change. And also, especially in Texas, why I support the Green New Deal and also 81% of Democrats do. I know that a lot of people in the Democratic Party and its leadership, not amongst actually Democratic voters, are afraid of the Green New Deal. But they really shouldn't be because it's a bold plan that actually is how policymakers are going to decide what is the vision that's articulated, all it says is we're going to scale to the ambition necessary to tackle climate change. And really importantly for Texas, it says we're not going to leave any oil and gas worker behind. We're going to make sure that they're part of this transition. And so that's why it's so exciting to me. I know that John Cornyn, my opponent, is opposed to it. He says it's too expensive, but he doesn't calculate the catastrophic cost of doing nothing around climate change. And more importantly, I don't even believe he's actually read it um, because apparently he didn't read 20 years of climate science reports because earlier this year, he just finally realized climate change is real. So I don't really trust him to talk about how we're going to tackle climate change for future generations. So, Christina, um, you know, obviously here in Texas, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of pushback on the Green New Deal from these massive oil and gas interests we have in the state. And politicians like Cornyn are really allied with them. And so is his colleague, Ted Cruz. And I'm wondering if, you know, your candidacy is a bold move in a state like Texas because the Democratic Party for years has sort of gravitated toward political operatives who came up in the Democratic political system and hire a bunch of consultants and, you know, do their their campaign by sort of raising money from, you know, big 
interest to, to run ads on television and try to appeal to the suburbs of Houston and Dallas. And I wonder if we could start by talking about how you plan to attack this campaign. You know, what is your strategy coming at it for, as a political organizer and not as a political operative? You know, what is your strategy for breaking through in a state that's been red for a couple of decades now? So one, Texas is a very different place today than the Texas of the past. I think John Cornyn represents a Texas of the past that really doesn't exist anymore. Our state is a state that is incredibly diverse. It's incredibly young. By 2022 in Texas, one in three eligible voters is under the age of 30. It's one of the youngest and largest electorates in the entire country. And I, when I decided to run, I've never held political office before. And when I was asked by the folks that ran Beto's Senate campaign and some of the folks that run our state's largest progressive organizations, I decided to run. But I said, if you're asking me to run, I've always wanted not to run because I've always wanted to speak my truth. And um, I have lived in past political moments where people don't speak their truth. Um, And I think we are living in a time where people are desperate and hungry, not just for authenticity, but someone who is willing to stand up to corporate interests, to stand up for working people. And so I have made the commitment to always say in this campaign exactly what I believe in. And that's how I intend on winning on the merit of my ideas and by mobilizing and galvanizing voters that often don't feel spoken to or represented by either political party, especially young people and people of color. I think that those folks are part of the 81% of Democrats that are for the Green New Deal. And I think even if you are an oil and gas worker, look, if we know why the Green New Deal, in my mind, is so important, it says we're going to marshal the resources as a nation necessary to make this a national focus, a national crisis that it is. And we want to make sure that Texas is a leader in this transition into a green energy future that creates millions of good jobs. Well, I think Texas should benefit from that. Why should we be left behind? Because we have a few senators that have more interests in their corporate donors than the people of Texas. Can you talk a little bit about your past and the Workers' Defense Project and how you came to the work that you're doing now and also the role of workers, especially like undocumented Mm -hmm. workers, food and agriculture workers in the Green New Deal and how it's going to speak to them and their experience. So, you know, while we're talking about the Green New Deal, we're also talking about a time when we have massive inequality in our country. Here in Texas, we have very low unemployment figures, but I don't think that tells the full story of what Texas families go through. So in our state, we work more hours than people in most other states, but you wouldn't know it by looking inside our pocketbooks because we have one of the highest childhood poverty rates. Many, many millions of families in our state live just on the margins, are low income and moderate income in Texas. What is exciting about the Green New Deal, it's also coming at a time when we can talk about how we not just envision how we change our energy system, but how we change our economy. To me, it's an opportunity to say, we are not only going to judge our economy by how well big corporations are doing, we are going to judge our economy by how well ordinary people are doing, and also our planet. As someone that spent a decade in Texas organizing construction workers, you know, we're sitting in this really nice studio in Austin, Texas, And I promise you that this facility and every single facility that was built across our state over the last 10 years 
probably had undocumented hands that helped build it, that we have all benefited from. Because in Texas, half of the construction workforce is undocumented. You go into the agricultural industry, it's an even higher percentage. Perhaps no state has benefited more from the contributions and courage of undocumented workers than Texas. 10% of our workforce is undocumented. One in 10 workers in Texas. So I want to envision an economy that's going to be judged and start imagining that we're going to be talking about what workers are earning, that in this green new economy, we're going to be talking about what kind of savings they have, what kind of retirement they have, not just how many jobs they have, but what kind of quality of jobs they have. And that especially in this state, I want us to be a bold leader in that, um, in this envisioning of this new economy. And the last thing I'll just say is that having been on the ground across the state, I've seen the economic costs of when we build a system that is willing to accept undocumented workers' labor, but not their full humanity. And I think we have the opportunity to accept people's labor and let them be full human beings in our communities and country. And that while John Cornyn, I don't think he's the right leader to lead us in this next phase, not only because he hasn't been an environmentalist, but while he has been accepting millions of dollars from the construction industry, I was making $43,000 a year representing construction workers that lost their fingers, limbs, and lives. Literally, our economy built on top of them. The idea that everyone's full humanity counts is a radical idea, particularly here in Texas, um, and it shouldn't be. But the the idea of, of some sort of basic recognition of the working class is was vital to the, the original New Deal. And what the original New Deal has as a lesson, if nothing else, is that if you're going to make big social change, the most powerful have to give up the most because they have the most to give. And no one wants to embark on a big project of social change unless they see the rich paying the most. Uh, how do you sell that in Texas? Well, one, it's really fascinating when you look at climate change and communities of how, who's willing to give up the most. You actually find that a lot of polls say that the poorest folks in our community are the ones that are willing to si sacrifice the most economically um, because they know how much tackling climate change means to their children and to future generations. Um, so I see a society, a community, a state, a country that is ready, not just for the sacrifice, but the opportunity to reimagine how our economy works. Um, we know that we, as a, you know, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, should people be vegetarian or um, and I appreciate that there are individual things that people can do around climate change. However, that has often been how the right wing and big corporate power in this country has hoodwinked the American public and tried to push off responsibility onto individual action. The places we can make the greatest action and in inroads on climate change are with change are with major corporations, with ultra wealth, the ultra wealthy that have the ability to pay and have benefited. The real cost of the labor the economic and environmental damage that has been done around fo a fossil fuel-based economy was never calculated, and it's time we start calculating it. And I actually think that that will benefit the working poor who have not, uh, and middle-class families who have often not benefited, but the very wealthy have. Well, can I ask a follow-up? I'm oh, sorry, Tom, I'm going to jump, jump in just for a second, just because, I mean, again, the, the original New Deal sat on long histories of working people getting together and taking on corporations, right? Having the experience of striking and the experience of unionizing uh, or attempting to unionize, attempting to win rights, even if the unions weren't ever recognized. Here we are in Texas where unionizing is incredibly difficult, which is why you've set up the, the Workers' Defense Project, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So then 
how do we take that experience or how do you, how do you as, as, as our visionary leader here multiply that in ways that can constitute the force that we need in order to be able to make the ultra wealthy pay because at the moment the ultra wealthy have uh, you know newspapers and TV and and you know the presupposition that anything that takes from the ultra rich takes from everyone whereas in fact the opposite is probably true. So we're we're coming at a place when we're talking about climate change. We're talking about the crisis of democracy, crisis of economy, and crisis crisis of us around climate change. Right, like these three huge um, crises. But I think out of crisis comes opportunity. I think when we do our best as progressives, we envision a future and paint a future of the world that could be that we can create. I truly believe that the only thing that changes the course of history is when ordinary people come together. I sometimes look at Washington and it's really hard every day when you see what's happening in Washington to not lose hope. But what gives me incredible hope around those three issues is Texas, because we changed Texas. We've changed the second largest economy in the country with 38 electoral votes, 36 congressional seats. I know that we have the capacity as Texans to dream big because we are big, that we have the capacity to not just envision how we change our energy system, but we have the capacity to create a new economy that tackles income inequality, that makes corporations pay their fair share to society, um, and that also builds a democracy where a billionaire class doesn't actually get to control and say who represents us, but we get to decide who represents us. In my mind, that is also what I see happening with the crisis of climate change, economy, and democracy is the opportunity to tackle all of those together at the same time as a bold and large state that is incredibly diverse and I think represents a lot of who America is going to become. So when people think about Texas and the Green New Deal, you know, oil comes to mind immediately, and oil and gas, and we've talked a little bit about that. But, te- but Texas is also the third biggest agricultural state in the country. It's got a massive fruit and vegetable industry in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, I think it's the, there's some counties up in the panhandle that comprise the you know, biggest source of cotton in the United States. And the Green New Deal um, resolution didn't get very specific about agriculture, but it mentioned transforming it into um, a system that sort of stores carbon in the soil um, it's also got a lot of fair labor language in it. And as we all know, and this probably everyone listening knows, in the Rio Grande Valley, the working conditions are horrible. Um, pay is very low. The, um, the workforce that we rely on to produce this huge amount of fruits and vegetables is largely undocumented and abused. And so I'm wondering um, if you've thought through what a Green New Deal would look like for Texas agriculture. When we look at Texas in the rest of the country, right, of the 48 lower states, we are projected to be one of the states that's going to suffer the greatest amount of drought, that's going to suffer the greatest amount from extreme weather conditions. And so I think we have so much to lose and gain if we don't tackle climate change and if we don't have leadership that fully understands that, especially around agricultural communities. I think about farmers, ranchers, consumers, and then also workers around climate change. You know, I spent time here in Texas representing construction workers, workers who literally would die of heat exhaustion in our state. Farm workers also die of heat exhaustion. We're not even talking about climate change, about sometimes the impacts that will happen on farm workers if we don't fully tackle the crisis with increasing um, heat in our state and drought. But I think that we can really lead for the rest of the country as such a big agricultural producer. California is already leading in numerous ways. And if we actually shift 
our political outcome in Texas and are willing to have leadership that embraces the Green New Deal and embraces what it could mean for oil and gas workers, agricultural workers, and construction workers and manufacturing workers for big kind of core subsets of who would benefit from the Green New Deal. I think that there's a lot that we could do. I will say, obviously, I know that some people in agricultural communities and farmers across the country wanted to see more or different things in the Green New Deal. But I think that that's what's important and exciting about it is it doesn't actually say as much as people think it does and that it's our opportunity to articulate that. It's our opportunity to reach out to agricultural communities and ranchers and figure out how we make the Green New Deal work for workers, for farmers, and for this new economy that we're going to build that also works for consumers and working people. You know, you mentioned something that you articulated so beautifully about the relationship between the time that people are spending working, and it doesn't reflect in the money that they're making in Texas, especially. How are you speaking to those people who are working like three or four jobs or who are working, you know, like shift work on an oil rig and they work for, for 36 hours straight or something like that, you know, and they don't see their families or whatever. And how do you speak to them about what the Green New Deal can offer them in terms of quality of life? and why that's important. So one place I think of, just as an example of like what we could build together, that's both a benefit for our communities, our economy, our environment, and our families, is um, the Sunnyside Landfill in Houston. Um, Do you guys know about it? It was a landfill for many decades in Houston. It's now being converted into the largest urban solar farm in Texas. The Sunnyside Landfill Mm -hmm. in Houston. Yeah, and so it's now being converted into the largest urban solar farm in the state. I went and visited it recently. It's in one of the lowest income communities in Houston. And as it gets built, it's going to be, it's the size of 200 football fields. Um, And now it's going to be filled, soon construction will start, with solar panels that will create good jobs for local residents and clean energy for 12,000 local residents. And also they're going to be able to build it to deal with flooding. That community was underwater a few years ago during Hurricane Harvey. So when I go and talk to people, I talk about what are the issues that we're facing? Well, we're we're in a low-income community where people are struggling to make ends meet. Their energy is too expensive and they don't have good jobs and they don't have a nice park to send to their kids. Instead, they've got a landfill in the backyard. Well, imagine if we repurpose that. And that's just in one local community in Houston. Imagine with a Green New Deal that goes to the scale of what um, the New Deal was about how we rebuild our economy. And then the other thing is, I do not try and make oil and gas workers our enemies. Um, People are just trying to get by. We have 250,000 people that work in the oil and gas industry in our state. But there is so much more opportunity to create millions of good jobs. And as someone that's worked on worker quality, to me, it has never, ever been enough to say we created 100 jobs or 1,000 jobs. I want to know what those jobs pay. I want to know if those workers have retirement security. I want to know if they have health care. And I want to know if they have savings. And I want to know if they get to spend time with their families. When I envision an economy that treats its people and its planet well, that's how I measure it. And corporations' bottom line, I think their their bottom line will go up, but it can no longer go up at the expense of the rest of us. What is this like lie that we're sold about how much money we make from oil and gas in this state and how it's supposed to make us all richer. Like, I I mean, it seems as if, okay, we've got this, we've got this resource that we're, we're sending out, we're making money on, but like, 
we're not making people richer. I mean, the poor in the state are poor and their lives are not better because we have all of this oil wealth. What is that myth? What is that lie? Like, where is that going? How is that being utilized? Well, we've also said that there is an economic miracle in our state, but for thousands of workers I represented, that miracle was actually a nightmare for them. So we don't talk about the cost to working people. Across, not just in Texas, but across the country, 70% of Americans don't have more than $1,000 in savings, yet they're being told when they turn on the TV that the economy is doing great. So in our state, the myth and lie about the oil and gas industry, I think, is detrimental um, to the working people of our state. But I want to also say it's actually detrimental to an industry whose time is running out. Um, We have to transition. And the oil and gas industry is not monolithic. There are some companies that know they need to transition, are putting massive amount of money and resources into renewable energy. And um, I do think that there is substantial wealth in the oil and gas industry that will be required to transition, but that it cannot be solved by the private sector alone. And that there are oil and gas companies that do not want to transition. And they've tried to hoodwink the American people. They've tried to hoodwink us in Texas by making us believe we have to hold on to this industry instead of leading in a national transition. And if there are those companies that want to cling to the past, we will leave them behind. But we are not going to leave the working people of our state behind. But there is a debate um, about what the future will look like in which the far right is very energetic. Um, and obviously here in Texas, we and, and this is a conversation we had when Naomi Klein was, was with us uh, a few episodes ago, and we're, we're having this conversation on the day after Mr. Trump uh, has withdrawn the United States, uh, formally withdrawn the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement for what that was worth. Uh, but th- we've got now this, dis- you know, we, we have members of the far right who are climate extremists, um, who who are saying, yes, there is a climate crisis. And uh, the way we deal with that is with walls and with zero energy, um, sorry, zero carbon uh, detention facilities and uh, ways of managing the climate crisis in order to perpetuate inequality, because that's what white supremacy demands. How do you argue against that? Look, we're going to have we talked about the three kind of crises that we face, right? Economy, democracy, and climate. Um, the the fourth, the, the way that we get distracted by the right wing from actually attacking those issues in a way, Texas has a very deep tradition of economic populism. You look at someone like Jim Hightower, we're talking about agriculture, our former agricultural commissioner, who, by the way, has endorsed me, um, who... <laughs> As well he should. Uh, yes, <laughs> but who really understands this deep-rooted economic populism in Texas, that can go two ways. And I think Democrats oftentimes don't understand that. They don't speak to the real economic needs of the American people and their pain and their real suffering. And then we have Republicans that the way they speak to it is by distracting us through the politics of racism and xenophobia. Here in our state, I think that we are very prone to that kind of politics, but I think that that politics is reaching its real pinnacle um, and now is going to face its decline. Um, That if we don't tackle climate change, we're not going to just have thousands of people marching to the border. We will have millions. Um, So me, if if I want to talk about the best policies to deal with immigration, I also talk about climate change, that you need to be able to tackle climate change head on. And we need to, as progressives, paint 
a big, bold vision about what the future economy can be and how it works for everyone, the worst thing we can do, especially with a crisis this big, that will not wait for incremental change, that will not wait for the politics of polling, we need real, bold leadership to bring the American people towards a vision. When we combat the xenophobia, the racism, and the rise of white supremacy with a vision that invites people in to build something new, I think that's how we combat it at its best, but we don't combat it through the vision or the lack thereof that has been given, honestly, by our party over the last few decades. You know, um, pivoting off of the sort of dark vision that Raj just just painted, uh, which I, th- I do think we are going to see a lot more of. We saw a little bit of it in El Paso with that, with that horrible massacre. That guy was a right winger who, um, who believed in climate change. And that's why he decided to, to go do what he did. Um, when I think of a, of a, of a brighter and less sort of doomsday future, a future with a Senator Ramirez from Texas instead of Cornyn, a future that where we get a a green new deal rapidly enough to take on climate change. What I see is a sort of eruption of social movement energy and things like, you know, getting people, not just getting people to vote in communities that have been left out in Texas for, for decades and who therefore don't vote, but also not just voting, but in sort of political action. I feel like your candidacy is going to depend on it. I feel like the, the Green New Deal success is going to depend mm-hmm. on it. And I'm wondering if you see that happening and if you can give us some words of encouragement on that, like, is that happening in Texas? And, you know, maybe talk a little bit about your experience with, with Jolt. What made you start that and, and how that project is going of, you know, getting these communities activated and voting and, and doing more than voting? You know, you have someone like me running for Senate in Texas and being seen as one of the top contenders in the Democratic Party, I come out of movement politics, right? Like I come out of movement organizing. The fact that this is even happening, I think speaks to the hard grassroots organizing that you have seen groups like Texas Organizing Project do in our state that knocked on half a million voters' doors Mm -hmm. in black and brown and low-income communities in Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio of work like the Communication Workers of America and the Teachers Union, the two largest unions in our state, and construction workers that I worked alongside of, um, and then the young Latinos that I worked at with at Jolt to help build their political power. I'm not asking people to elect me. I'm asking people to elect the movements that I represent. I do not believe that we elect good people and we go home and hope they do the right thing. I think we elect good people that then ignite us to continue fighting alongside of us. And that in this state, in Texas, when Republicans do lose Texas in 2020, I think we can expect for them to play every single dirty trick imaginable to try and hold on to power because if they lose Texas, it's not just going to change the political outcome of our state for an election cycle. We're talking about changing the political outcome of our country for a generation. You know, I wasn't looking to run, but the idea of being able to work alongside so many movement organizations and movement leaders to articulate what our vision of our state and country could be on immigration, on climate change, on healthcare, on gun safety. I want to be part of that's what I live for because I realize that in a state where so many of us are poor or middle just middle class that we're not a state that we are extremely wealthy, where one in six of us don't have healthcare, the highest uninsured rate in the country, where we are the largest carbon emitter, um, and one in three of us are immigrants or children of immigrants. We have been made as progressives 
to feel like we are a minority in a state where I actually believe we are the majority. And so I just have massive imagination about a campaign that invites people in to not just see their common interests, but to see our collective power. That is when I get excited about democracy and social change, when social change and movement organizations meet movement candidates. And that's um, why I think our campaign is exciting. You know, this idea of imagination, I think, is uh, so spot on. You know, Naomi mm-hmm. talked about it a little bit when we when we talked to her. And I'm wondering about where you think those intersections are where you can really reach people and change the way they're imagining their lives. What is considered success? What that looks like? How you live day to day in a country where we have the Green New Deal? Like right now, I think in Texas... I know where I live in Austin, like the idea of success is having more than one car. If you're on the left, it's more than one Tesla, you know, for example, <laughs> because you, you're conscious about the environment. But like these ideas of like gaining extreme wealth and living your life, traveling all over the country or all over the world on these vacations, kind of moving through the world in this space where that's the idea of success. Like, how do you speak to people about how they can change the way that they imagine success, imagine their lives differently at a time that's like really critical, you know, like um, for young people, for people who are seeing wealth presented in such a way, in, in such an extreme way in this state, who might think that that's what they want. So, you know, I spent a lot of time when I started Jolt thinking about how do you move people that traditionally have been seen as non-voters in our state or not seen as a political power and force? And how do you get them to to be that and be seen as that? And what I realized is that more than anything, yes, there is this vision of what success is. But I think all people are seeking a sense of belonging, that they are seeking um, security in their lives, which our current economy does not afford them. So on the, and, there, and there's two aspects on the sense of belonging. Look, we're a state that are majority people of color. I think all people want to be seen for who they are and accepted into a community, especially in a, in a society where we are very disconnected from one another. We have higher rates of isolation and mental illness than we have historically. And so when I imagine a society that I build, that we help build and come together, it's like, I think of this young woman, Yamaleth, that I worked with at Jolt and what Jolt gave her. So many times I would travel a state and young Latinos, we would do this training that's called Brown is Powerful. It was a very sexy title, but it was mostly data charts about the power of the Latino vote. It was like half of the people turning 18 are Latino. We make up 40% of the state's population. And it would blow people's minds because they thought we made up 10 or 15% of the state's population because they didn't see themselves anywhere. And so this young woman, Yamaleth, after our first town hall where we held political candidates accountable on our issues, she was crying and she said, I feel for the first time in my life powerful and part of something. And so um, I think all people are seeking that, whether they're white, black or brown, rich or poor. And especially in this moment where we see the rise of politics of hate, that people are desperate to come together and feel something deeper in society, deeper in themselves. And I think we have the opportunity to build that and create that together. And then also build an economy where people can spend time with their children. I want an economy where we join the rest of the industrialized world and 
some of the poorest, including Somalia, Vietnam, and Afghanistan, and give mothers paid maternity leave. I want to live in a society where every single person has paid vacation and paid sick time. I want to live in a society where people actually get to retire, and that is a guaranteed right. I don't think people actually, everyone wants, you know, some people do want a Tesla shirt. It'd be nice to have a Tesla. But I think people more than anything just want to live their lives and have depth to their lives and have security. And I think we can give that to everyone. What what I like about what you're just saying is the uh, the idea of doing less work is attractive. And, and of course, that's part of the Green New Deal. I mean, the idea of you know, working is, generates carbon. And insofar as uh, we have less time in the office and less time commuting and less time uh, schlepping from one place to another in order to be able to be wage slaves, uh, the, the the less carbon we emit. I wonder if when you talk about this, this new world that's to come, uh, there is space to, to articulate it very, very clearly with the, the, the Green New Deal. And, and if so, you know, what are the things that you find people are like, oh, now I understand what you're talking about when you talk about the Green New Deal or, or oh, my God, I, I didn't realize that actually the, the kinds of world we could live in would be like this. What lands most? You know, actually, it's the very basic thing at first that one, the Green New Deal is the most common sense proposal because there's not that many proposals out there because both the right has try- been trying to deny climate change and then. Democrats, I wouldn't even call left, like Democrats have been trying to pass piecemeal solutions which are not bold enough and don't actually paint anything about the future. And so what I find lands the best is just talking about what a common sense solution the Green New Deal is. It's about building a new economy that works for Texans. And why wouldn't we be at the forefront of that? And as Texans, we don't run away from big problems. We tackle them head on. I feel like that really speaks to people. And most people haven't read it. It's okay. People are busy. Um, and so when they realize that it's about scaling to the ambition necessary to tackle climate change, and we're going to build an economy that creates millions of good green jobs, and we're going to be able to also tackle income inequality, well, I'm all for that. So I feel like, and right now, I think that there is also a disconnect. Our state is extremely young. Most young people are freaking out about climate change as well they should um and so they're excited that there's a solution and a policy proposal it's not even a policy a framework that allows them to grab onto and start to push towards that vision but i mean are we not in danger just in terms of green new deal organizing in general of having these moments that we've seen in the uk or in france where the gilets jaunes for example are working class people who've been gentrified out of their towns and now they're being forced to pay extra to be able to commute back in again to be able to put food on the table. And they're the ones who bear the brunt of this climate change, you know, of, of carbon taxes. And in the UK, we had a, a protest where someone from the Extinction Rebellion was hauled off a train by the, you know, the folk waiting to commute into work uh, because, you know, th- they don't have time for, you know, someone fighting the extinction of the planet um, because they've, you know, they, they've got to work in the precariat to be able to, again, m- make ends meet. How do you bridge the gap of where people are right now? I mean, it's one thing to say, could, you know, what would you like? You know, we have unicorns, and uh, and you know, you, you hear this, right? Uh, and on the other hand, people are like, "Look, this is great, but I've got to get shit done. I've got, yeah. I got kids to feed." How do you intervene into, into that debate? Yeah, so you know, after doing political work, progressive political work here in Texas for a decade and a half, what I love about it, there's no lefty choir to preach to in Texas. <laughs> there's only a bunch of non-believers to convert. What plays in 
Berkeley and Brooklyn doesn't always play in Texas. So I've always found it my job as a progressive that often believes in the national progressive solutions is to make sure that they make sense to ordinary people that are working two, three jobs, sometimes six, seven days a week. And you can tell them right now, this is how it will change my life because they don't have time for um, yes, they want to imagine in a future, but they also want to imagine a future that could come tomorrow because they have real needs today. So I think that that's also our job. So I'm t- when I talk about it, I think about the fact, look, a million construction workers in Texas, many of those jobs are good jobs. A lot of them are very, very bad jobs. To me, the Green New Deal also is about making sure that that workforce has higher standards, that there's higher unionization rates, better protections for workers. And if we have a million jobs now, we could probably have another million more jobs in construction and retrofitting in new green building over the next 10 years in Texas. And I want to make sure that every single one of those new million jobs have high pay, high standards, and that we also look at the existing one million jobs and how we raise those standards. So then you're talking about things happening quickly. Day one in your first term, what what do you do? I find my office and get business cards. No, um, <laughs> um, look, there, people always ask me, what's your top issue for Texas? One, we're a state of 29 million people. Obviously, climate change is very much at the top. But I think of healthcare. There is a crisis of healthcare in our state where we have the highest uninsured rate and we refuse to take Medicaid uh, dollars that now hurts thousands and thousands of children in our state. I think about immigration and that we have the opportunity as Democrats not just to say what we're against, but propose what we're for. So I'm not just going to go in. I'm going to go in Texas style and not just say I'm here to do one thing. I'm here to do five things at the same time. And that when you change the political outcome of Texas, the second largest economy that's been held by Republicans for a very long time, I'm going to go in with big, big plans and plan on moving as an organizer, not just my Senate seat, but how do I organize up and down the ballot across Texas and make sure that what I'm fighting for at the federal level correlates with what we're fighting for at the local and state level. Because one thing that Republicans are very good at when they take power, they already have their plans. When progressives take power, power we turn around and go, shit, we did it. Sorry, am I allowed to cuss? What does Slavoj Žižek say the day I'd sell my grandmother into slavery to find out what happens the day after the revolution? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I don't know who that is, but it sounds pretty funny. I know, I'll explain yeah. that. Yeah. So I'm a nerd, and I think about what we could do if we have power all in a state as large as ours. So it's going to be more than just what's my first policy proposal. Mm-hmm. after I find my office and, and get your business, business cards. cards. Yeah. I'm curious about whether you've been in touch with the sort of national progressive forces like the Bernie Sanders campaign, like Justice Democrats, like AOC and her and her team. Are you in contact with them and swapping policy ideas and, and that kind of thing? Or I constantly get asked if I am the AOC of Texas, which I find interesting. We both do have long hair. Um <laughs> But I'm Mexican and she's Puerto Rican. Um, (laughs) um, I have so much respect for what Justice Democrats and AOC have done. I don't know them. I was asked to run by our state's largest progressive organizations and Texas groups. You know, some of my opponents were in a Democratic primary. They were asked to run by people in Washington, like Chuck Schumer and What's important, I think, for Texans to know is that I'm accountable to them, that I understand our lived reality. Um, I want us to what I fight for to be aligned with what's possible and what progressives are talking about nationally, but also to make sure that the things I'm working on are very much 
in line with what we need as Texans right now. Once I win, you bet that then we can talk about how to do that nationally. Right now, I'm focused on winning the primary and the general. And there are folks that we're asking for their support. You know, I'm hopeful that we will be able to get the endorsement of the Working Families Party and some of our largest labor, largest labor unions and largest progressive organizations in the state. Since many of them encouraged me to run, I would be surprised if they were not supportive. <laughs> you know, I wonder about the... Um... As a woman, as a woman of color, someone who has a child, you know, what what does it mean to be representing Texas as a woman, as a woman of color? So I actually try and carry the weight of what that means a lot. Like I wake up every day and I think about what it means and the responsibility of it. One, like I, I'm very clear that I'm no longer low income, like I'm middle class, right? Because I used to be low income until a few years ago. But what it means for me as a Latina to be running as, you know, my mom only went to school till the eighth grade. Uh, She can't believe that I'm running for Senate. Like I asked her, what is it? You know, she said she saw something on Facebook with my image. And she was like, I couldn't believe that was my daughter running. And I said, well, why would you feel that way? She said, because I'm just a humble Mexican woman. And it kind of hurt my heart that she said that. Um, But I know also what it means. So at Jolt, I would always ask young Latinos, you know, name me one Latino that speaks for us statewide. And this was before Julian ran for president. So they couldn't name me one. They would maybe name me Selena, uh, the pop star. And I was like, that's great. We have one person we can all name. And her voice hasn't been able to speak for us for over two decades because she's dead. So let's absorb what that means for us as a community that we make up 40% of the state's population. And we can't name one person that fights for us, speaks for us. Like that hurts. And that hurts a generation of young people, a generation of older people um, across our state. So for me, yes, I think about what it means to be a woman running, but also what it might mean to be the first Latina to win statewide, or even if I don't win statewide, but if I get really damn close and how many other young people of color, people that have felt marginalized, people that are queer, that haven't felt themselves seen will be able to be inspired by that or moved by that and see themselves in that. That is a responsibility um, that I try and think about every single day so that I can honor who I'm trying to serve. And I'm not just trying to serve Latinos, but trying to serve communities that haven't felt seen, heard, or fought for. That's beautiful. I do wonder about one thing about healthcare workers in the state. And what their role is in the Green New Deal and how you're going to address that. Our entire economy, so much of it has been based on fossil fuels. Every single industry and job will have to be rethought in this country. But I don't think we should be afraid of that. I think we should be excited about what that can mean, especially while we're talking about restructuring our entire healthcare system. We have the most expensive healthcare system in the world with some of the worst outputs of any industrialized nation. By any measure, that is a failed system. So when we imagine what the Green New Deal could do and how we reimagine our economy and how we reimagine our energy system, that applies to every single industry, every single worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the rhetoric of care and repair as the jobs that come out of the the, the Green New Deal seem well matched to the healthcare industry, don't they? I mean, yeah. you know, here are people who are working in the healthcare industry, but their job is to deny coverage. And, you know, all of a sudden, the vision of the Green New Deal is actually to redeploy large numbers of, of people who are, in, who are involved in the shitty bit of the healthcare industry and actually put them or make available the possibility of actually getting involved in good, well-paying care work as opposed to the crappy time. And we'll also get rid of a lot of paper um, because we won't be filling out yeah, so exactly. many forms yeah. for private insurance, hopefully. Yeah. 
And that will, I mean, I think that the projections for Medicare for all saving a lot of money are largely based on eliminating insurance companies with a lot of people sitting around inputting data. Raj's point is great that it also has a vision, the Green New Deal and Medicare for all have a vision of a lot more care for people who right now don't get care. If one in six people in Texas don't have healthcare right now, that's a lot of care that's going um, unmatched. And, um, and also, um, you know, something like long-term care, Texas does have a, even though it's getting younger, there is an aging population in Texas. You know, a lot of people are uh, woefully un- underinsured as they head into those years. And I think that the, the job creation can way outweigh the, the job losses from something like destroying this sort of parasitic insurance industry. I feel like we're in this incredible moment as Texans. Um, One, I feel like our state's narrative, the parts I really love about the story of Texas and how Texas see themselves, we do see ourselves as the center of the universe, which we totally should. Um, But I think what's important about that is that we believe we can have the guts and courage to solve big problems as Texans. And so when you tap into that, into people, and then a collective new story about, I often think about a the story we tell ourselves of the past. And as progressives, we operate the best. Well, when I think about the right wing, when they operate the best and they win power is when they're painting a picture of the past and how we need to cling to the past. When progressives win, we paint a vision of the future and what we can build together. And so, so much of that narrative, I think of what is the future story of Texas that we're gonna tell that taps into who we already are and how we see ourselves. To me, that's very much like the boldness, the courage, the arrogance a little of who we are. And I'm excited to, to work with millions of Texans to tell that new story of who we're going to become around healthcare, around immigration, around climate change. Christina, thank you so much for joining us uh, on The Secret Ingredient. Thanks for having me. Thank I really you. appreciate it. For more on The Secret Ingredient podcast, visit our website. It's thesecretingredient.org. And please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review while you're there. We appreciate your support. Raj Patel is the author of A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things and a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Rebecca McEnroy is a host and executive producer at KUT. And Tom Philpott is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones. For KUT, I'm Miles Bloxon. Thanks for listening. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I host a live discussion show at the Cactus Cafe here in Austin, Texas, called Views and Brews. It's a KUT radio production, and we also have a podcast. Just search for KUT's Views and Brews. You can explore conversations about time and art with Saul Williams, or check out what Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg had to say about the theory of everything. It's all on the KUT Views and Brews podcast.